This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hello everyone, it's Cheryl Arkell from Better Reading. We're thrilled that Wiradjuri author Tara June Winch has won the 2020 Miles Franklin Literary Award for her novel, The Yield. Profoundly moving and exquisitely written, The Yield is the story of a people and a culture dispossessed. But it is equally a celebration of what was and what endures and a powerful reclaiming of Indigenous language, storytelling and identity. I recorded a podcast with Tara last year and it remains a favourite of mine where she talks about The Yield as well as her extensive travels, living in France and her connection to the land as a Wiradjuri woman. In light of her well-deserved win, I decided to revisit the episode and share it with you. I hope you enjoy. Tara June Winch, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me here. I really genuinely, hand on my heart, have been super excited to talk to you today. Oh, that's nice. Me too. Yeah, Yeah. I've really, I've, I've just loved it. We met a little while ago and I just felt some kind of connection. And I also follow you on Instagram. Okay, so pull me up if I get some of these pronunciations wrong. Tara is a Wiradjuri author. Mm -hmm. She was born in Australia in 1983 and is based in France. Her first book, Swallow the Air, was published in 2006 to critical acclaim. Tara was named a Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist and won a Victorian Premier's Literary Award. Tara's second book, The Story Collection, after The Carnage was published in 2016 and shortlisted for the 2017 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction. Tara also wrote the Indigenous dance documentary, Carryberry. Is that right? It's Caribbeary. Oh, Caribbeary, which screened at the 71st Cannes Film Festival and is touring internationally. Wow. Tara is here today to chat about her latest book, The Yield a profoundly moving and exquisitely written story of a people and a culture disposed and a powerful reclaiming of Indigenous language, storytelling and identity. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Is that what it says on the paper? No, (laughs) I just said that. (laughs) Do you like it? Yeah, I liked it. I haven't finished it but I loved it. I'm loving it. Um, It's really, really about place, about who you are, um, where you come from, and it's about belonging, and it's also about storytelling, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think that other stuff too. Yeah. But talk the, to me about the book. Oh, it's really tricky to, um, I think, yeah. to, to actually say exactly what it is. There's no um, okay. elevator pitch for it, or there's no sound bite, but I can, I can have a go. How's that sound? Firstly, tell me what the <laughs> yield means. Well, the yield is actually I was talking to Melissa Lukashenko the other night and talking about titles, how they just sometimes, well, Melissa was saying that the titles just come to her first and then she writes the book to the title, which is super interesting. Yeah. And it's the same for me. Like I've got, the yield was there for a long time 
Um, and I was just attached to it because I knew that the book was going to be agricultural because mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be set on Nuremberg, which is the Wiradjuri word for country. Yeah. And so I was, knew I was going to set it in this um, rural uh, landscape and, yeah, the whole idea of the reaping um, and the whole idea of the giving in and giving up and it just had these multiple layers that I really needed um, to explain the multiple layers that are in the book, those multiple stories. And the multiple incarnations of that landscape throughout history, Australian history. So that's what it means for me. I've, I've, and I, and I want to kind of start talking about where it all came from, but for me it's, and, and I'm not meaning to sound in any way disparaging about age, but when you read it, it seems to me it comes from a person that is a lot older than you actually are because of the wisdom, the deep, deep wisdom in the book. I'm pretty old. Oh, you are not. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's talk about age because you were 23, was that right, when you first published? 22. 22. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay. Talk to me about where you grew up. So I grew up on the south coast of New South Wales, um, a little town called East Winuna mm-hmm. in the Illawarra, mm-hmm. so on the coast. And we were really lucky to have a housing commission house that was right on the beach, you know, So, but it was very bizarre and strange at the same time because of, of the huge difference between where I sat on my doorstep and what I could see around me on the street over, which was million-dollar beachfronts. Yeah. So it was really, it was like a perfect place to grow up for a writer. Yeah. That made me a writer for sure. Was it, what, for you, what made you a writer? Was it story, the story around you? Did everything you see and experience be a story? Does that make sense? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. And I looked at my siblings with like romanticism I think like I just thought that they were and I still think so that they were super magical and I was trying to always keep up with them were they older um yeah much older my sister's much older um, my brothers were four years older. That is a beautiful thing to say what about other people, that they were super magical. I mean, yeah, and I always felt that from a young age. I started writing Swallow the Air, the, well, actually the first chapter of Swallow the Air won a Young Writer's Prize in 2004 yeah. or 2003, so I was a teenager still. And um, that ended up, I didn't actually win, it came second. <laughs> Shucks. Like, <laughs> it was the State Library of Queensland Young Writers Prize. It's, it's still running actually and like really cool people have won it or been got second prize, like Benjamin Law even I think won it. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I got second prize and that was the first short story I'd ever written because I'd seen the sign and I needed some money. Yeah. 
Um, and it's it became the first chapter in the whole novel of Swallow the Air because I continued to work on it and the next year won the unpublished David Yunapon Award for Indigenous Writers. Yeah. So then that came with a publishing deal and yeah. serendipitously there my career started. But that story was about my brother. It was, it was about my hero. It was about Billy, yeah. you know. Do you know, uh, let me put this to you. Um, I... Um, I grew up as a Lebanese Australian here. My parents immigrated. I was born here, but my uh, me and my sister were born here, but the rest of my siblings and there were four others were born in Lebanon. And we all have memories of growing up, right? And I want to talk about that. Yeah. Memories. And mine are similar in your, to you that they are – there was so much adversity. There was a lot of racism, a lot of poverty, you know. We lived in a one-room house, all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't unhappy. You know, I had yeah. really the most marvellous childhood. But that's not everybody's perception in the family. Mm. Talk to me about that, your well, experience of that. Everyone has a different version of their childhood. Every single person in the family, including yeah. the parents, I think, as well. Yeah. Um, I won't speak on behalf of any of my siblings, but I think we all had this, like, silly and quite light and and goodness-filled childhood and, you know, we had nature around us a lot. That was important. Mm. We had dogs and... They make a big difference. Yeah, they do. They do. And we had a backyard and a clothesline. I yeah. can see it in my yeah. mind. There it is, like, like everyone else. Did you experience um, being singled out at school and experience... Any of that? I mean, I, I did a lot. was always odd, like always odd. Mm -hmm. So, and I've always felt like an outsider on mm. so many multiple levels. So I couldn't really pinpoint um, <laughs> exactly, to, I don't know. I couldn't express my... <laughs> That who I was as a kid in that way because I guess I'm still like that as an adult. Yeah. Does that make sense? I yeah. can't really decipher myself. Yeah. I just have to go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. Do any of us decipher ourselves? I don't know. In I guess in interviews we pretend we know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, we have these really assured uh, versions of ourselves. Yeah. Do you know, I always thought when I was younger, particularly in my 30s, right, that when I'm 50... I'm going to have sorted everything out. I'm going to know everything. Yeah. Not in a smart-ass smart way, just mm. like I would have really sorted out all my shit. Yeah. Well, that doesn't happen. You don't look like you're 50. <laughs> yeah, I certainly am. But, you know, it just it's the same as in any age group that you are. It's kind of sort of the same. You're yeah. always struggling to kind of find your place and who you are. Do you feel that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. all of the time. Yeah, and and to reckon with childhood. Childhood stays there. It's, mm. it's uh, I guess, it's our foundation. But the memories of childhood, unless there's been some kind of, you know, great trauma or, but they stay with it, with us so mm. clearly mm. today. And they, and they, for me, they were so big, the worlds around me. I was looking up, you know, I was chasing my older siblings. <gasps> there was a big, big ocean in front of me. Um, everything, the houses seemed big, 
But today I caught the train this morning or this morning from Wollongong and I sat up on the top seat of the train and I was and I got a window seat overlooking Wollongong to the coast, on the coast side. Beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely. <laughs> and I was looking and I was waiting for my childhood street because yeah. you could see it from the train tracks. And I just was, you know, the, you have these dark memories around your hometown and I felt so large on that top, on the top of the top rung of the train looking down at the town and I thought to myself, why were you so scared? It was, look how small it is and manageable and I was sort of like flicking the houses and, you know, of, of the bullies' houses. I was just flicking them. I could, you know, yeah. it's, it was like I was uh, this, not God, I mean, God, I don't have a complex, but I had control. I'd, I'd grown up and I don't know. That's, that was really a beautiful moment for me coming yeah. here in the train this morning. Yeah. But do you know what it is too, um, and I think you're like this as well, it's pondering's not the word, but it is, and I'm, I'm maybe it's, we call ourselves dreamers or whatever it is, and you think about things like you pause. I have so many of those pauses during the day where I think about happy memories or, you know, memories that weren't so happy, but why were they so important at the time? I was at the New South Wales Writers' Centre um, the other day doing a talk on mm. Friday I had so much fun. But one of the things that I remembered, because you often forget things, is that when I started school, because we had come back from Lebanon, mm. I couldn't read and write. And that's why picture books were so meaningful to me. It's fascinating. It is, isn't it? But you only remembered this memory the other day. Yeah, on Friday. What triggered it? Uh, they asked me about, you know, why, why, how my career started. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't that, yeah. memory, though? And it, it's it's not a bad memory, but I just thought, wow, that must have been such a challenge at six. Everybody Completely. around you could probably read. But Completely. anyway, yeah. No, my daughter had the same thing because we, when we moved to France, we now live in France, um, she was six. And so yeah, she yeah. had to, she was immersed in a completely different language, complete confusion, yeah. I guess she'll have a... More, she'll remember that. Yeah, she, of course. And I, I think she's 13 and a half now, so I don't think she has that great um, deep perspective. But I think she will. It'll be interesting to talk to her at 20 yeah. and talk about those experiences and those the deep feelings, the underlying feelings that she really did have. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about how you got to France in terms of career and, and, you know, how somebody ends up, because that's another challenge in itself is, is living somewhere else um so where did you go to so tell me about your schooling so you finished school you're writing right throughout no at no. school yeah. no no not at all oh, maybe you were just it, thinking stories yeah and I was doing my homework and stuff but I did drop out of school after yeah. year 10 yeah it just wasn't for me and I had this really strong urge to um understand who I was and it was stronger than getting an education at that time yeah, Melina Marquetta told me a similar thing. She oh, finished really? up in year 10 as well. Yeah. She's just like, I had to go and find myself. Yeah, yeah. It was too strong. Yeah. I wonder if that's a common thing with writers. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so I um, I dropped out and I hitchhiked around Australia until I was 18 basically. Wow. I lived um, in different places like Prune. In, uh, vines in Margaret River. I worked at the Dome Cafe on Rottnest Island, up at the Pilbara at a cafe, just dishwashing. I mean, wow. 
I was just waiting and you to. you got around via hitchhiking. Yeah, it was really bad. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell no. my daughter. <laughs> and You've really got to keep that from her. <laughs> yeah. No, she knows. She knows. She's sensible though. It's okay. Yeah. It skips a generation. Good. <laughs> and then um, I was back in Sydney working at cheaper petrol station as a car washer to save money to go overseas. So I was just waiting till I turned 18 and waiting to have some cash. So but at that stage you'd never put pen to paper in terms of writing something? Oh, I don't know. I guess well, I you thought not that I... a journal? Absolutely. I was and I was writing these long letters but and I was writing what I thought what I would call poems. Yeah. But I don't know how to write a poem still and obviously they are my formative years of becoming a writer. Absolutely. Was this going around the country, having this great reflection, meeting mob from different areas or just meeting like fellow waitresses, just get, trying to understand who I was. And then the letter writing to my nana and to my family, I'm here now, I'm safe, don't worry about me. Yeah. And um, you did keep in touch. Yeah. 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 And um, so I guess that was my education yeah. with writing. Yeah. Um, and then I went to India and I've still got poems kicking around from India. I mean, yeah. poems. Yes. Like, yeah, like a, in inverted commas. Yeah. They're just actually what they are is they're just little thoughts in prose. Yeah. That happen to just like run down the side of one page. Yeah. Um, and then when I was a, when I was 19 and I won that second prize in the short story competition. Now, well, so I had to, you had yeah. to have written something to have won something. Well, that was my first short story I'd written. Yeah. So where did that talk to me about that? Yeah, because I'd come back from living in England yeah. on a goat farm, of course, with my musician boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I came back to England, I came back to Australia. I'd never been to Brisbane, so I decided to go there. And everywhere I'd travel, I'd always go to libraries because I could read books, look at the news, go on the They're internet. community havens. Yeah, absolutely. Get a coffee. Security yeah. guard might even get me a cup of cordial, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so I'd go, I'd go all the time to the State Library of Queensland. Yeah, which is a particularly good library. It is. And it's incredible. I saw it the other night, what it looks like now. But mm. back in the day it was um, that brutalist architecture. Ah, right. But okay. still it was a yeah. beautiful, beautiful place to go and this really special place. It will always be a special place in my heart. And one day on the notice board, like A4 piece of paper, it said Young Writer's Prize, $1,000, write a short story, $1,000 first prize, $500 second prize. Wow. And I... You know, I must have really thought I was going to be a writer because I was travelling around then with a typewriter that I've still got here in Australia. Wow. So I typed, used a typewriter to type up that short story. Yeah. I can't remember if it was called Swallow the Air or not. It might have been called Dust on Water Glass. I don't even know. Maybe I saw, I didn't know what writing was really. I'd never had an education in it. Yeah. And so anyway, so I wrote this story about my brother and... His sister, so these fictional characters, but the essence of it was all about our um, relationship as siblings and they're having a little adventure down the beach. That's the yeah. first, Yeah. that's the story anyway. And how many words was it roughly? Do uh, you remember? 
It was probably like 1,500, yeah. I guess, a page and a half, something like yeah. that. And then um, handed it in, got the call while I was on the bus. I must have picked up some temp work doing waitressing and I was on the bus going there and got the call and they said that I got second prize, $500. That will be the highlight of my career still. And I said, yeah, I repeated it on the phone. I said, what? I won second prize on the (laughs) phone so that everyone in the bus could hear. (laughs) And I I was to go to the state library to pick up the check and da, da, da. Um, And uh, when I got off the phone, I kind of turned to everyone in the bus and said, did you hear that? Um, And then in the meantime, which is, this is how it becomes serendipitous, one of the judges for that prize was Nick Earls. Oh, wow. The writer. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know, Nick. Yeah. (laughs) And he read the short story and passed it on to an editor at UQP. Yeah. Whose name is Sue Abbey. She's incredible. She's not there anymore, but um, she's retired. But she was an incredible force at UQP and really put together the black writing list and was established the list of Aboriginal writers that are still there today. Yeah, wow. She's incredible. She's a giant in yeah. for, for us. And she rang me up and uh, said, oh, so in the meantime, this must have been a couple of months because after that short story, $500 prize, second prize, I got this great burst of confidence and I ended up enrolling as a mature age student. I had to do a little test down at Southern Cross University at the Indigenous College, Guinebee Indigenous College, yeah. studying Indigenous studies, not writing. Yeah. So I, it gave me this confidence that, oh, okay, I'm smart, you know, maybe yeah. I could go back to school and I could finish my education, which yeah. is an incredible thing. Absolutely, because, yeah. uh, you know, it's not like the influence of your parents because you're out there on your own yeah. saying go back, go back. You actually no. had that thought yourself. Yeah. How old were you about by then? 19. Yeah, Wow. And then I got the call from Sue Abbey and yeah. she rang me and said, I read this, have you got any more of these stories? I said, oh, no, I don't have any stories because I didn't. It was my yeah. first. But I've got, like, poems. She goes, yeah, we're not interested in poems. <laughs> All right. She goes, <laughs> hold on there. <laughs> yeah, settle down. <laughs> and she goes, um, come, let's go and have breakfast. I'll meet you in West End. Yeah. It's like 9 a.m. Yeah. And I said, she goes, where are you, Lismore? And she goes, it's okay for 9am? I was, oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I didn't have a car, but I was an expert hitchhiker by then. Right. But I, So I got up like 5.30am to make it up to Brisbane in time, wow. hitchhiking. And it was just one of those worst And how da- far is it? I can't even remember now. A couple of hours. A couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And it was just... You could have made it 10. Huh? <laughs> you could have said 10am. Oh, I just didn't want to argue. Like if yeah. she wants, this important lady wants yeah. a meeting, I'll be there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so it was just one of those terrible days where every car that picked me up was literally getting off at the next exit on the highway. Right. But you'd still have that brief conversation, oh, what are you doing hitchhiking or what are you going to Brisbane yeah. for? And I said, I'm meeting this uh, person fr- from a publishing company about talking about a book and they must have, those people <laughs> must have thought, this woman is, this young lady yeah. is insane. Yeah. She's been smoking. But it's UQP. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, when I was working in London back in 1989, yeah. I mean, it was such a recognised publishing imprint because of Peter Carey. You of know, course, yeah. people knew it. Yeah. Yeah. And I made it on it's time. It's not small time. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was huge for me. Huge. And so I made it on time and she then, I had Vegemite toast, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> Classy. <laughs> Classy. I didn't even know, I probably didn't even know you could order eggs. Yeah. Um, and then she rang me pretty much every day. We had eight weeks until the manuscript had to be in for the prize yeah. for the David Yanaipon Award and she rang me pretty much every single day and I cried on the phone. I said, I can't tell this story, I can't tell it. And she said, go, 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 you can, you can. And we literally handed it in like, uh, I don't know, 30 minutes before closing. Yeah. Isn't that is just so remarkable, the relationship between publisher and author, isn't it? So an editor, yeah. 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 It's remarkable. It was special. And it is. It really is. Sue is still special. Like she she bought um, my daughter her first like little jumps, like little onesie. It was yeah. from Seed. I've still got oh, it. Wow. Because I mean, it is such a personal relationship. Yeah. Unlike any other job I think. It's because it's really somebody that is trying to bring out the very, very best in you um, but also – they're, they're on your side, yeah. but also they're trying to bring out the story. Completely, you know? yeah. yeah. They know it's there and they trust that it's there in you. Absolutely, yeah. They're the midwife and mm. and the mother. That's beautiful, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, not, and they don't want to, they know that you've got to, if we're going to use the, if I use the metaphor of the midwife, they know you, you're, you're the one who's got to push in the end. They can't do that for you, no. giving birth. But they are there, they're, you know, as the yeah. birth partner standing beside you, yeah. holding your hand, getting yeah. sworn at, yeah. told to off <laughs> and all that. But they stay there, don't they? Yep. Yeah, and they get very little recognition as midwives do. Yep. Yep. Okay, all right, so what happens after that? Where are we up to? You've just submi- submitted your first manuscript to a publisher. Yeah, and then I won. Minutes, and then you oh, won. Oh, no, for the, it was for the Queensland Premier's Literary yeah. Awards. And you won. And then I won. So yeah. 12 months after that, second prize, first short story I'd ever written. Yeah. 12 months later, I had a publishing contract. Wow. And then it took a little bit of time to get it up to scratch before mm-hmm. public publishing it. Mm-hmm. Longer than their usual turnover. Mm-hmm. And I also fell pregnant mm-hmm. as Just a... to give yourself another challenge. Yep, as yep. a 21-year-old by then because we yeah. had a couple of years. And um, I gave birth to my daughter at, at 22 and five months later published my first novel. Yeah, wow. At 22, yeah. At 22. Yeah. Yeah. Is that all? 
<laughs> I mean, I've just been, I had all, always had nice people around. I think yeah. I was pretty lucky. Yeah, but it does come from within. And using your analogy, you're the only one that can push. I think there is something in you that, that, well, you're a writer, so that's got to happen regardless of what mm. you do. Mm. Um, tell me then how it is, you you know, you, you decided to leave Australia um, and I want to talk about those feelings because I know they can be emotional, but tell me how you got to France. So we were travelling heaps since I was a baby because yeah. immediately she was on a book tour yeah. in, in a sling. Yeah. So um, we travelled lots. And that's the- also the beauty of youth. You can pull it off. Yeah, can't you? actually, I'm not promoting anyone out there yeah. become a single mother at 21, no. at 22, but um, I had energy and stamina that I don't have now. Mm. So we were traveling heaps, and actually, then there was this period of time after Byron Writers Festival. So I went to my first Byron Writers Festival in 2006. Yeah. And after then, we'd sort of settled in Wollongong. And there was this period of time, and every new mother would know this one, when you are in such a routine of um, of the baby and of your space, your, your unit, your flat, your house that you live in, you become almost trapped, a feeling of being trapped. Mm. And that if you don't push against always being home to make sure they're having their naps and always walking the same route with pushing the pram to get them to sleep and, you know, always, always, always. If you don't push against it, you could easily get trapped and that's the feeling that I had. Mm. So we just, when she was 10 months old, we just flew to China and backpacked for a few months around China. Right. Was there anyone in China backpacking? With a 10-month-old baby? No, no. No. There wasn't. But there's no. some funny stories from that that ended up in After the Carnage. There's one called Guangzhou. Oh, no, it's called Baby Island. And it was about going to Guangzhou. This was after a few months with my baby. My daughter's name is Lilla. Yeah. With Lilla there. And we had a great time. We travelled on buses and, you know, local buses and uh, tractors, back of tractors and trains and yeah. and... It was fine. It was hard to find nappies back then. Mm-hmm. It was super hard, yeah. difficult. Um, but we we had a ball and we just, yeah, it was fantastic. How far does her memory go back, do you know? Uh, it depends like on always like if you show the image or the video yeah, and if then yeah. it sparks the essence. But what happened was a few months into the trip or a couple of months into it, we were in Guangzhou and we're walking around Lula was in my backpack, backpack baby pack. Yeah. And um, I saw this foreign couple pushing a pram yeah. like the first time. Yeah. And I ran up to them <gasps> and I was like, oh, my God, you're travelling around China with your baby too. It's so cool. And they were like, oh, yes, yes, this is our daughter. I looked down it was this brand new Chinese baby. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, you're adopting a baby. It's a baby girl. Oh, my God, they really need adopting, you know. And they were like, yes, we're so happy. But they kind of looked at me apprehensively, (laughs) maybe because I started bawling my eyes out, like, it's so beautiful. (laughs) And I literally then looked up and there were hundreds of foreign parents with their babies. Uh. It was the place where Americans 
came to get their visas and all their paperwork for their adopted babies, this this small island in Guangzhou. And the streets were clean. It was almost like a Disney village. It was such yeah, a strange... To make it attractive, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. It was completely different from the other streets of Guangzhou where, you know, persimmons are rolling down the street and there's chickens and yeah. street food being cooked. It was like there were Barbie dolls for sale in stores and you know, beautiful kind of designer baby clothes and yeah, it was wow. so strange. But there's a story. It ended up becoming a story not uh, 10 years later in um, after the carnage. Okay. I've got to read that. Um, <laughs> and so you're travelling through China and then where, what do you do after that? Um, and then we came back to Australia and I was writing bits and pieces. I thought I was working on my book. I knew it was agricultural and I knew it was going to be about the Wiradjuri language. And talk to me about that. Talk to me why you thought it was going to be about that. Does that like, I mean, you know, how long had it been since you'd used the language? Well, it'd be quite recent actually because in 2004 when I went down to, four, yeah, 2004, early 2005, I was driving out to Nuremberg, to Wiradjuri country where my father's family are from, to f- feel what my character was going to experience in mm. Swallow There, what was becoming Swallow There. So it was research trips. And I even met family members that I hadn't met before. I had talked about what it was like to grow up Aboriginal in, on the mission in Condoblin. And I had all these discussions, but I also did like an hour or a couple of hour course in Wiradjuri oh, wow. and bought the first Wiradjuri dictionary that had come out by Dr. Uncle Stan Grant Sr. and Dr. John Rudder, the linguist, in 2003. So it was all fresh, this, this re, this, um, re, uh, vitalization of the language. Yeah. And so I bought this thin yellow A4 dictionary that I've still got today and used it in Swallow the Air. There's about yeah. three or four Wiradjuri words in Swallow the Air. Oh, wow. And so after Swallow the Air came out, I had those feelings of what how special it was to me to learn a few words in Wiradjuri to have this dictionary that I knew then which was 2006, that I wanted to create another book that would explore the language further. I just didn't think it would take so long, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to know your first experience, like your first feelings of that or when you went back to where your father was from because when I went back to Lebanon, I was so nervous about what could, that could be like. You know, I was born here, I was definitely Australian and whatever, but... And when I got to customs and, you know, I have an Australian passport and whatever, Mm. but the customs guy stamped my passport and said, welcome to your homeland. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. And I was crying. Um, And when I got there, I realised that all the people were like me. Mm. Returning. Mm. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Um, You know, it wasn't all perfect and no no, I had the great uncle that was and it came up in Swallow the Air the line that he said he said he said there's a big missing hole between what you're looking for and what happened to us you know we weren't allowed to be Aboriginal that's what he said to me and it made it into Swallow the Air 
obviously, because it's yeah. like the most poetic yeah. line, like yeah. literary line, but it was true. Yeah. I feel a connection to the landscape and when I, and I feel a connection to my family, the family members that I know and in contact still with, but I understand when I, when I research, when I look at my culture, when I learn more, I know that there are so many layers to it and I had you have to look at the history and all Australians do, the history of missions, stations and the intervention and the horror of yeah. colonisation. And so it comes hand in hand as an Australian, mm-hmm. this both sides to the story. Yep. So, and my father actually didn't grow up with the Wiradjuri language either. So writing this book in particular, The Yield, was a gift for my father. Yeah. It's basically for my dad to learn language and learn in a way that's fun and with characters and a storyline and a river that runs through a book and, and things you can really root for, you know? Yeah. So... He, I know he's not going to probably read it, but he'll listen to the audiobook, I reckon. Yeah. And that's the same. Okay. So how, how did you – so you're in France. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we were in China. And then came back. Came to Australia for a bit. And then I won the mentorship through Rolex yeah. with Nobel laureate Walesha Inca. Right. So that changed my world. Yeah. I was 24. Because I want to talk about that because you, you immerse yourself in a completely different country, mm. language, mm. culture. Mm. And for me that just seems so difficult yet again. No, I was pretty like, uh, I'm pretty strong. I'm yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, I'm it's not a bad not place cool, to but live. <laughs> I'm no. pretty cool. No, no I, I know mean, what you mean. I love travel. I love learning. Yeah. It's my favourite thing in the world and I love learning about other people's experience, their language, their culture, their food, everything. Mm-hmm. It's my great love. Yeah. So it was just another great place to go to and learn about the Yoruba culture. Because it's really formative again for you because you've been there how many years now? Where? In France. Oh, I thought we were talking about Nigeria. No, you didn't say Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> I said I won the prize with the Rolex. Ah, which include Yeah, uh, which included the sorry, Nigerian Nobel laureate, Waleisho Inka, and we went to live in his house, me and Lilla. I so, did not know that. Sorry, oh, I missed that. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we went to live there. And then also part of our mentorship with Wally is we lived at his house there um, in Abiyokuta, and then, which is in the country, very remote area of Nigeria. And then we also decided, because basically with the Rolex mentorship, they give you a bunch of money and you and your mentor decide what you want to do anywhere in the world. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it was amazing because it's also, there's no application process. I didn't apply for that. How it, did you get chosen? It's a bit like the Nobel Prize. Is that There's scouts all around the world that are looking for people and they, they go to all these big board meetings with, with all lots of, you know, very established people and then they make a shortlist and the shortlist was flown to Nigeria, me and three other girls, and then you have these meetings. We spent 10 days as a shortlist in Nigeria and then he makes the choice who, who's gonna, who he's going to pick to work with. 
you're such a superstar. Huh? No, I'm not. I'm just mum. I'm just I'm like just normal. It doesn't Do you know happen. what I mean? But anyway, that was a really cool experience, of course. Yeah. And it, we're still friends yeah. and he's read this. Wow. <laughs> and um, he said, congratulations, oh, confident and assured. That's it. That's all he said. He won't praise you anymore. Yeah. Don't even ask for it. That's enough. That's enough. But um, part of what Wally and I decided we wanted to do is work in New York, LA and Nigeria because he was a professor at UCLA as well. Yeah. And he had some friends, when I say friends, I'm like really famous writer friends in New York and wanted to kick around there too. And so that's what we did. Wow. And... Um, so you lived in New York for a while? Yeah, for a few years. Yeah. Ended up being a few years. Lilla went, Lilla went to school there and I ended up interning at the UN. Yeah. At the wow. United Nations Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues, which was really cool because I got to learn about how the issues we face as us mob face as Indigenous people here were issues that in First Nations people face all over the world. Yeah. Global problems. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Our yeah. parallels were incredible. Mm-hmm. They're down to um, the, what inter, intergenerational trauma does to families. Yeah. Everything. Okay. So from there you went to France? Yeah. Okay. Because we've got to wind up soon. <laughs> oh, so yeah. I just need to get to France because that <laughs> That's to me, we, well, only, only because I do think it's formative because your daughter yeah. is French, isn't she? Well, she's, it's her mother tongue now. Like yeah. I watched her, I watched her mother tongue. Uh, change that yeah, was incredible because wow. now she prefers her novels in French, yeah. her films in French. She's thinking in French, dreaming in French. So English became her second language, which was super fascinating as well. While writing this book, but France, we went there because I'm a writer, and like that's where writers want to go. Who yeah. like um, Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre and Marguerite Duras. I love French writers. I love that they can say so much in a few words. It's something I've always been attracted to. And so we went and I wanted my daughter to be uh, to be bilingual, yeah. multilingual now. Yeah. Tara, honestly, we could talk for another hour. We've, we've got to wind up. You are really just such a beautiful inspiration to me. I, I just, I really, I admire you so much and I think you're, it's not just talent, it's passion, I think, that, yeah, I that think, oozes out of you. I just think we're all, like when we admire other people because the people I admire are teachers, you know, yeah. doctors, yeah. like yeah. taxi driver who's downstairs waiting for me now. Yeah. Like when we open ourselves to that admiring other people and, and appreciating other people, we get filled up with their goodness too. Does that make sense? Mm. Oh, I absolutely agree yeah. with that. You just gotta... I read, I'll just touch on, I read a little article, or it was a big article in the New York Times the other day about mm. happiness mm. and it had these headlines of happiness. But one of them uh, which really moved me was happiness is to let so, to allow somebody, to acknowledge somebody for what they can do, like not to take the rec- the recognition yourself like to give it away because you know if somebody and I thought that is such a tiny act but it is an act of kindness and on every level isn't it absolutely it's brilliant yeah if you walk around not with rose-colored glasses but acknowledging others greatness and and humility you're just going to be happier it'll rub off yeah I think so you make me happy you make me happy too (laughs) thank you (laughs) thank you Tara Jean Lynch 
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.